You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. This is a movie where a penis literally ejaculates right at the lens. If you don't want to listen to this, you have my permission to skip it. to the projection booth i'm your host mike white joining me is ms maitland mcdonough hi there also back in the booth is mr david kittredge and hi there this week we are looking at the 1971 film from james bidgood pink narcissus it's a wordless film which tells the story of a young hustler played by bobby kendall who engages in a series of fantasies throughout an evening the film was shot on 8mm, but still presents a lush, fantastic color palette and incredible sets that are even more incredible when the viewer remembers that this was all shot in Bidgood's Hell's Kitchen apartment. I'm not sure if we can spoil this one for anybody, but uh, it'll probably make a lot more sense if you see the film before listening to our discussion. So, Maitland, when was the first time you saw Pink Narcissus, and what did you think? You know, I've been trying all day, actually, to remember precisely when I first saw Pink Narcissus, but I'm guessing that it was probably in the 80s and that it was at some cinema, like a small cinema screening, maybe one of the art cinemas in New York, not not the big ones, but the little ones way down. 
that would show things like vinyl and, and movies like that that really weren't being distributed theatrically. And of course, because there was no secondary media world then, you couldn't see things on, on video, let alone DVD. They really were the only place that you could go to see these movies that people talked about or maybe that you had read about in film magazines but were simply not available in any other way. And they would often just show me one showing one night and it was be there or don't see it. I mean, I vividly remember trying to go and see vinyl someplace downtown and I got there, I think 45 minutes that, that is, that's that Andy Warhol film vinyl about 45 minutes before showtime on a snowy night. And it had been sold out for an hour because that's how hard it was to see that film. In fact, I've still never seen that film, and I probably no longer have any excuse for it. But um, So that's what seeing Pink Narcissus was like, and that has to have been where I saw it. And what were your first impressions? That it was absolutely, incredibly amazing. I think at that point I hadn't seen any Kenneth Anger films, or at least I hadn't seen anything other than Scorpio Rising, which is amazing enough in, in, in its own way, but I hadn't seen... Pleasure Dome film, Invocation of the Pleasure Dome, which looks so much in many ways like Pink Narcissus that it's really remarkable. But didn't know that then, so there you go. And David, how about you? When did you see it and what did you think? I'd been hearing about Pink Narcissus all through uh, film school, but I didn't see it then. I didn't. It was a, actually quite a while after college that I saw it. I think the first time I saw it was I Netflixed with the DVDs, not with just not, not through streaming. Um, when strand releasing did a, what was it? A restoration of it? Like in the mid aughts, I watched it for the first time. I, I, and it was an interesting experience. I wish I had seen it projected because I think a lot of it, you know, a lot of the power of the film comes from the visuals and the colors and, and the dreamlike nature of it. By that point, I had seen a couple of Kenneth Anger moves. And of course it's, you know, very influenced by that and, and a lot of other kind of movies of the time, uh, you know, just pop culture movies. But it was a really interesting experience. It didn't really like get under my skin and rewatching it because I knew we were going to talk about it today. I found it more fascinating than I remember. I remember the thing that first struck me about it was how incredibly sensual it was for a film mm. that had so much frontal nudity because that kind of nudity can really pull you out of a movie. Even now when you see a great deal more of it. And when I say frontal nudity in this case, obviously I mean male frontal nudity, but even if we weren't talking about pink narcissus, I would mean that it, it didn't take long in the seventies for female frontal nudity to be a, a relatively common thing, but guys were still keeping their junk under wraps and you could, you could see their butts, but you could not get a front nude shot in well, the, very many films, even European films, which were much, much more liberal. Well, I think that women in love being one thing really kind of blew the lid off of that. And that was, I think, the late 60s with uh, Ken Russell. Um, very famous or somewhat infamous scene where um, Oliver Reed and uh, oh Alan Bates do a very homoerotic oiled up nude wrestling scene and even is it even as i describe this now and they're like you know people would be like oh my god was that in a movie in the 60s yes and it won best screenplay and who wrote that screenplay larry kramer and what did larry kramer do with that money eventually well he put some of it into act up in the 80s so you know it's it's kind of interesting 
the, the whole question of male nudity, even today, is very, very, like, verboten. And I think that, Maitland, what you're talking about, pulling you out of the movie, as a gay guy watching it, it's it, it's even more fraught. Because, like, you know, I've seen a lot of movies, especially gay independent movies, lots and lots of nudity in a lot of gay independent movies. And they're not pornographic. They're, they're literally just, you know, there it is. But it is, it still feels a bit naughty. Is this like the last kind of naughty thing we can do in movies? It's, it's still to this day. You see a penis and you're just like, wow, okay. What movie am I watching? Where am I watching it? I have to look around me. Like who's watching it with me? How do I react? It is very much, it is still a taboo. I mean, you know, nobody makes jokes like, hey, hey, show us your dicks. Because no, that's not funny to guys. Oh, granted, this is not very funny to women at point either, but... Gay guys have a very different view on this, I will say. Show us your dicks. It's just like, wait, really? Now? Oh, wait, hold on, you're joking. I don't know. Is this conversation just going to go down? Like, Because I'll follow it right down into the cesspool right now, but I, I want to keep it arty and classy. Well, I think everybody knows I'm willing to go straight down into the cesspool. <laughs> I've never had a problem with that. I don't remember how this movie came across my radar. I think it might have been you, Maitland, as far as saying, why don't you cover this on the show? Because I had never heard of this until I started doing research for it for the show. And I loved it. I was really taken aback by just how gorgeous this movie is. I mentioned that it was shot in 8mm. And 8mm, just for folks listening at home, my folks used to shoot our home movies on, which was Super 8. So there were sprocket holes on one side, which was Super 8, which uh, gave you a little bit more picture. But with 8mm, it was sprocket holes on both sides. So your picture was a little bit smaller. So there wasn't that much information that you could necessarily fit onto a frame. That's why, you know, 70 millimeter is like the big thing or IMAX, you know, people just get like so caught up with, uh, oh my God, you know, 70 millimeter IMAX, these frames there are huge versus eight millimeters, just this tiny little consumer type grade. And my God, the things that Bidgood did with this, and, and it's not just the sets, it's not just the colors, but there's also the animation. There's also just the way that it's edited and just the way that all of this comes together. It is just such a, a, a pleasure to watch this movie. And I am very envious of you, Maitland, being able to see this in a theater because like David, I think that I would have gotten even more having been in that enclosed space with this really big on a big screen and just kind of drawn into this world because this this whole movie feels like it's inviting you into the screen. I'm constantly just like leaning forward in my chair, just like I want to be in the world that Bobby Kendall is in because it just seems like one of the best places ever. Maybe not when you go out into quote unquote the street later on. That seems like this kind of phantasmagorical nightmare, but at the same time, it's absolutely gorgeous to look at. Although I do love those street scenes, and we can come back to that later. But one of the things that I think is most remarkable about what he was able to do using a very limited piece of equipment, 8 millimeter cameras were great for shooting your kid's birthday party. They were great for going out to the park and you know shooting, again, your kids playing with the dog. But you couldn't get an enormous amount of depth of field it gets grainy really fast when you try to enlarge the image. It was not meant to be an art film medium. It was just meant to be the thing you used to record the things that were happening in your life. And wow, isn't this better than having to go through all of those still pictures we took? And 
because now look, you can see people moving. You can, you can see the kids blowing out the candles. It's also nice, but there's extraordinary depth of field in a lot of these shots. And looking at it this time, I noticed that especially at the very beginning, when you're doing those slow pans through that, that jungle setting with all of that foliage in the foreground and that moon in the background. And there are these beautiful moments where you see the leaves move a little bit, which has got to have been somebody standing right out of frame, just, just wiggling things. And then when you see that butterfly, you know, I realize on the one hand, oh, it's incredible. It's not the most sophisticated effect in the world, but it's a pretty fabulous effect when you consider that he was doing this in his breakfast nook. <laughs> I mean, that's breathtaking. That animation reminded me a lot of the old George Pal type animation, which is remarkable to say because I don't think that he was an expert in animation, but yet he's able to pull off this cocoon opening, the butterfly coming out, and then the flight. The flight of the butterfly looks really, really good. And then he's even able to do with this, again, limited commercial format, he's able to do multiple exposures. I think that everything that he's doing Maybe they had an optical printer when he essentially, I don't know if he would, you would say he had the film taken away from him or if he just gave up on it. Maybe well, so that's a whole nother story, which, which apparently everybody has an opinion on, but I, there, there are shots in this that had to have gone through an optical printer. Uh, there's literally no way, uh, like there's a step framing thing that's in there. As a filmmaker, I'm looking at this. There, there's no way this did not go through an optical printer. Uh, some of these shots, uh, but some of them, you're right, may have been in camera. I think probably, probably they were done. A, a lot of these shots, uh, and and especially the superimpositions and stuff, were done optically. Yeah, it looked like a lot of in-camera effects, which was really remarkable. The one thing that I thought for sure might have been an optical printer was some of the things that they did with the pearls towards the end, especially when there's like a cum shot and there's the pearls that are coming towards the cameras as well as the cum. The pearls all have different colors on them. I am curious, though, some of the mirror shots that they have right towards the beginning, because we have... Yeah, this opening in the jungle that you're talking about, Maitland, and then we go and we meet Bobby Kendall, and the only text that we have until the very end is this French across the bottom that translates to the follies of men, and then we have Bobby in this room where almost all of our action takes place, and you've got that amazing shot where it's him reflected like eight times in these different mirrors. Maybe he did that in his room. I'm not sure, but absolutely gorgeous and the the pink that is going on just feels like an otherworldly pink color i also think the fact that that mirror scene makes you think of lady from shanghai so it's a great deal <laughs> ah. how amazing what he was able to do with very i don't want to say primitive but compared to what a filmmaker today i think would expect to have at his or her disposal even on a film school level, and in fact, and, and if you're going to a good film school, you, know, you have good equipment and you have good lab facilities and at your disposal to be able to do some of the things that are done in this film, I think would be quite difficult. I don't think there's any shot or set piece in this movie. And this is something I was saying to my boyfriend last night when we were watching it again. I don't think there's anything in here that's not difficult. Which is the kind of the astonishing thing. It's a 70 minute movie and literally almost every shot in this film is like, whoa, that took some time, which, you know, makes sense because the entire movie did take a lot of time. It took seven years to make over a very long period of time. That he's able to do these 
match cuts of these mirrors that I was talking about to urinals and that he has created this whole urinal set in his own flat. Wow. <laughs> they look authentic. I mean, I thought for sure he would have gone to some place to shoot this, but I looking at it closely, I was like, no, I think this is a set. And again, we move from this pink to this luscious green that we have and keep coming to uh, the way that the mirrors are. We pull back from a mirror and for a while I thought it was a proscenium over a stage, but no, it's just the top of the mirror. But we do have that kind of proscenium shape going throughout so much of this and it never feels like i'm looking at something on a stage like i said it feels like i'm much more involved and it feels like i'm there in the room with bobby as he's then starts fantasizing about so many different scenarios inside of this one set can i just stop you right there and can we talk about bobby kendall for a moment can we talk about how gorgeous he is as the resident homo i need to just take a moment and emote Bobby Kendall is one of the most gorgeous men in any movie ever in this movie. And I'm, this is not even hyperbole. It's not just because the entire movie is a weird kind of surreal homoerotic dream state. It's because he is genuinely, literally gorgeous. He is beautiful and, and he is flawlessly beautiful. I mean, you see so much of his body so close up all the time and he looks almost unreally perfect his flesh almost doesn't look real one of the first fantasies he has is where he is i want to say it's the matador fantasy where he is both matador and then please correct me if i'm wrong but i think he's both matador and he's also playing a mexican peasant at the same time so it's kind of him as a peasant looking at him as a matador Going back and forth between those, I mean, again, it's just like, wow, he looks so good in both shots. No matter what he's wearing, no matter what he's performing, he just looks gorgeous. And then when he, you put him in that Toreador outfit or Matador outfit, those outfits, the costumes are so luscious. Just all those sequins all over the place, just catching the light. Also, that Matador outfit is, is one of those recurring images that you see in gay adult novel covers of that period. And you might know that I, I collect gay adult novels roughly from 68 to 1980. And the Matador is a, is a figure you see again and again and again, along with the sailor, Officer Dick, to use the most obvious description. Um, and a couple... I have a book named Officer Dick. And I have no the, doubt. The cover is just perfect. I think I, yeah, I probably spent part of my 20s looking for officer yeah he's really trafficking in gay male archetypes because there is the sailor later on there's a leather daddy that shows up here in a moment there's the matador there's just i'm surprised there's not like the indian the cop the construction worker but we have so many of the the archetypes in this movie even uh if they're not foregrounded we still get to see them absolutely and they were so much of the kind of imagery to gay men at that time, because mostly the places that you could see homoerotic images that you could actually buy and bring home to your personal library were the gay adult novels and the, the uh, physique magazines. And physique magazines, although they did a lot of images of gym boys, also did a ton of, of role play of Indians, gladiators that was a really big one 
the Roman fantasy ones, some Greek fantasy ones. There's the Roman stuff in here, the centurion, the Roman senator, the slave boy, and then you even have the Turkish, uh, the sultan and his slave boy. Yeah, I forget about these other archetypes. Yeah, about the only thing that's missing here is the trucker, because I guess truckers just didn't quite fit into this image. I can't believe something for Fred Halstead <laughs> to do. Are, truckers are a big one. One of my favorite books actually is called Trucker's Horny Sailor. I mean, how wow. perfect is that? You know, if you're looking at an efficient title, that really just packs it in there in three words. Packs. Yeah, and I, I was hoping we wouldn't go there, but we went there, so that's fine. The whole thing with this guy all in leather and him on this motorcycle, there are shots where, and again, please, if you're seeing something different, because it does feel like a dream watching this movie, it looks like he's moving through animation at times, like his motorcycle and just coming towards Kendall as the matador. It feels like there's a couple animated shots where they're just moving him through space with animation. It's entirely possible. And and quite honestly, I don't even know how you shoot a sequence with a motorcycle in the kind of space that I know this film was shot in and give any kind of impression of movement. I don't know. If you gave me that space and that motorcycle and a competent cameraman, I, I, I'm still not even sure I could, I could figure out the beginning of a way to do that. And I went you know, to film school. He had to have had a, a gigantic loft. You know, doing the research on this, he lived in Hell's Kitchen. Hell's Kitchen, especially, you know, in the 60s and the 70s, was was former in- industrial, right? I mean, there were a lot of gigantic lofts. It was like Soho, uh, but Soho was a bit more, you know, even at the time, upper class. I mean, Hell's Kitchen was called Hell's Kitchen. It was Its name in the neighborhood is Clinton. It was called Hell's Kitchen because uh, there was crime everywhere and especially uh, racial stuff. Uh, the Cape Man famously happened in Hell's Kitchen. West Side Story was based in Hell's Kitchen because, you know, the Puerto Ricans were always fighting with the Irish, etc. blah, blah, blah. So it doesn't surprise me that an artist would have a gigantic loft in this place, I can only imagine the space had to be reasonably large for New York standards to get all this stuff done. I mean, even the shot where he's walking to the window and the window has all the lights and that kind of arcane, like, which was a breathtaking moment. I mean, I don't even remember it. When I watched it last night, I was like, I don't even remember this. That needed some depth. That needs a little bit of space. And um, I wish I knew, like, the address. <laughs> I would love to know where where exactly in Hell's Kitchen he lived. I would love to know that, too, because let's face it, most of Hell's Kitchen was very narrow, small apartment buildings with very small, narrow apartments in them. So I, I think it must have been a commercial space. Yeah, kind that like wasn't- way, way on the West. I'm, I'm thinking like around 11th Avenue or something like that, like somewhere way on the West that now is really like lovely. Uh, but up until like, you know, I would say maybe 2000, it was not. It was um, it was a place you didn't want to be at night. But you know what? When I was writing my Argento thesis, not even the book then, one of my issues was that a lot of the things that had been written about Argento were in Italian. They were in Italian genre magazines, and I don't speak Italian. But my sister was taking Italian classes, had an Italian tutor named Aldo, who lived in Hell's Kitchen. And I actually spent a couple of days with Aldo in his apartment, showing him Argento movies and asking him to translate things for me. Where did did Aldo live? I, I can't wait to hear (laughs) <laughs> Aldo lived on 47th Street between 9th and 10th. Oh, my God. I lived on 44th between 9th and 10th for seven years, six years, from 99 to 2005. So your neighborhood. 
Yeah, it was my neighborhood. Aldo's apartment was tiny. And so I can only imagine that it, it has to have been some kind of commercial space. Everything I've ever read says that it was his apartment. The commercial stuff go like is about west of 10th Avenue, from what I remember. Um, I mean, there was there was still like you know there was the film you know, film center. It was the film center. Thank you. A lot of movies, uh, independent movies and otherwise, got edited there. There were a lot of edit suites, and but there were big cavernous spaces because real estate in that neighborhood especially during this time, was very cheap compared to everywhere else because nobody wanted to go that far west. Nobody wanted to go west of 8th Avenue for like until the mid-aughts, you know, it really, it, it was not a very popular area. First, you know, the gays were in the West Village. We made that great. Then we were rented out and then we went to Chelsea. We made that great. Then we went to Hell's Kitchen. Now Hell's Kitchen is, I think, too expensive for the young gays as well. So I don't know where the young gays are now in uh, in New York. It was Williamsburg for a while, but and then Greenpoint. I lived in Greenpoint for a while, uh, and I think that that's too expensive too. Greenpoint now is really like amazing. I went back there like when I lived there in the late nineties. Polish gangs were still like roaming the streets. I mean, it was I mean it was like the Wild West. I'm I'm not even being facetious. Now it's like you know hipster organic coffee bars with farm to table arugula dishes for $15 and stuff. I mean, it's it's a very, very different world in, uh, in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Well, you know, also speaking of that 40s area, you know, going farther west, that's where I had all of my first piercing done. I had my, I had my tragus piercings, I had my navel piercing done in these loft spaces that piercers would rent. In fact, um, oh, the Reverend Jim, what's his last name? The guy who founded PFIQ. Maitland is referring to Jim Ward used to come to New York once a year to do piercings because there were almost no piercing places to go in New York to get anything done but ears. Was, so was it illegal then? Kind of other... Like tattoos it illegal. were? Yep. It was illegal for a long time. I had my first tattoo done in some grungy apartment in the East Village by some guy named Dirty Ernie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, I let a guy named Dirty Ernie put a needle in in my foot. So well, yeah, know, there you I go. Mean, it's like at the time. I mean, you know, tattoos were illegal in New York for far too long. I mean, it was it was it was almost a running joke. I had a friend of mine who was a tattoo artist who told a story of this this guy who came in with his girlfriend. He knew the girlfriend, but he didn't know the guy. And then he said to the guy, like, you know, so what do you do? And he goes, I'm an assistant district attorney. And then the guy's like, oh, my God, I'm so busted. And then the ADA is just like, okay, I want it right here on my arm, and I want it to look like this. And it was just like, nobody cared. I didn't even know that it was illegal. Yeah, it was It was illegal for a very long time. It was illegal until the 90s. Did they make it legal in the 90s? I thought it was in the 2000s, to be honest. I thought it was 96, 97. You could be right. But let's face it, that's preposterous. And it was all, I think it was Fiorella LaGuardia, actually, who, who made pushed through tattooing illegal in New York because some infection of something was blamed on tattoo parlors down by the waterfront. Well, I don't like his airport. But back to Pink Narcissus. <sighs> yeah, where do you want to go from here, guys? Back to Pink Narcissus. <laughs> let's talk about the Times Square sequence. That's amazing. That sequence is amazing. And plus, it's, it's like a third of the film. I mean, it's an enormously live, if not more. It's a huge portion of the film. And every single thing about it is just 
breathtaking, especially if you're somebody who grew up loving Times Square, as I did, because I spent a lot of time seeing movies there, and I was getting my tattoos not far from there, and it, it was a really big part of my, lo- my love for a New York that was even when I was in my last years of high school, I think, beginning to become a different New York, a somewhat more sanitized New York. I mean, all the Times Square theaters were being shut down, I don't know, in the mid-80s, I guess. Theaters that I had gone to and seen every scabrous thing you can imagine seeing in Times Square theaters, except porn. I didn't go there to see porn. I went there to see Euro horror and all kinds of sleazy stuff. But I wish I had known New York in that time. Oh, New York was so great. It was so great then. I started at NYU in in 1990, so it was really on the precipice of that New York before it turned into kind of like the mid-90s New York, which was which was very different. It was like after, you know, kind of Clinton got in and the economy started to boom and then it was all like dot-com cyber stuff and everyone worried about the bubble and all that stuff. But there was so much money into – like especially in the Times Square that in the, the – I would say that what, the mid to late 90s is when they started that whole thing? No, that thing started earlier actually. And it, Did it really? was part of – well, part of it was of the, the Giuliani initiative to yeah. push pornography at Times Square. Uh, that was that was a really big thing. Well, Giuliani came in in like ninety five, I think, or it was Dinkins before. It was like he was like ninety five, ninety six, or something like that. And then it was at the end of his second term when September eleventh happened, and that was like literally right at the end, and which which changed that mayoral election a lot because it was Mike Bloomberg versus. Uh, Mike Green, I think it was. Mike Bloomberg ran as a, uh, a Republican, although he'd been a Democrat basically his whole life, uh, up until that point. The way that New York changed during that period is really astounding. Oh, it's incredible. And actually, one of the things I was looking at just to remind myself before we had this conversation was James Bidgood's essay in that gigantic Tashin book on uh, Pink Narcissus. I, I don't know if you have seen that book, but it, oh, is. it is gorgeous. And it, yeah, you could kill somebody with that too. Yeah. Yeah. You could, if you, if you swung the right way, you could. One of the things that I find kind of astonishing, even while New York was at its seediest, which is when James Bidgood started writing, he was spending time there and he was chronicling what that New York was like, that New York and Times Square. I don't know if either of you have read either Meet Me at the Baths or Kyle, but Kyle is a breathtakingly good novel. Meet Me at the Baths, is, it, it's a good, fun novel, and it's well-written, because it did good, even before he was famous, James did good. Mm-hmm. But Kyle is an incredible story about mutable identity and the unreliability of memory and unreliable narrators and shifting perceptions that was published by cruiser classics, which wasn't even one of the good gay adult novel houses. I I don't think they published more than 15 books maybe. And it's absolutely incredible. And that kind of kaleidoscopic vision of things is, I think probably why Bidgood wanted to write about Pink Narcissus because it is all about a kaleidoscopic vision and in particular in Times Square sequence, a kaleidoscopic vision of sleaze and Times Square. It's very, very apparent when you watch this, as it as it is with with some other film directors, that this really is the product of someone who 
him up as a still photographer and in a way has his heart there because even as the camera moves whenever it does it's not about the motion mostly most of these shots in this in this movie in the entire movie are they feel like they're they're ripped out of a a still image collection in a way it feels like like you could take any of these frames and kind of blow them up and they're like just very precisely composed and very precisely thought out in a very kind of static still photographer kind of way and in, like not in a way that like other film directors who use motion more like a De Palma or even even Hitchcock would think of using the camera and when he does have motion in it it's always very much from A to B it's it's not about showing something that happens and, and illuminating a plot that way in as much as there is a plot. It's about going from this static image to that static image. I remember the cart with the, with the, the dude with, pushing the cart in the Times Square sequence and he's pushing the cart and then he pushes the sign of the cart, which is on the front of the cart right up against the camera. And it's very kind of like you're watching one thing, then you're watching this other thing. So he does corral your vision, but it's very, it's almost like a graphic novel in a way. I wish he had done more movies because I feel like it would have been interesting had he learned more about the motion of a camera or, or and, and the motion of camera movement or moving things to kind of bring a flow to the film in an editorial stance, like one thing flowing into another into another. The one like mild criticism I'll have about this film is that it's very kind of like image, 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 image. Which in and of itself, honestly, is very effective because it's like a dream. And because every image is so breathtaking. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Every, everything has been so thought out, which is one of the reasons I think it lasts. I, you know, you, you, this, this film is very, I mean, he does say that it was taken away from him and we can talk about the whole troubled production history or whatever, which is why he took his name off of the film. If he didn't intend this, I would love to know what he did intend because this is so dreamlike. And gorgeous and everything about it is so thought out. Every shot is so thought out. Every image, everything within the shot, all the production design, even every move seems so thought out. If Bobby is looking at the camera or he looks away or, or he does something or he humps the ground or whatever he does, it's like, it's very intentional. Like there, there's, there's nothing in this film that doesn't feel like it's, it's almost predestined. And, you know, this is a little bit of a, a side observation to what you were saying about the intentionality of every single image. But I think that one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that Pink Narcissus continues to look as astonishing as it does, is that unlike a lot of films that were produced under the kind of duress under which this movie was produced, doing it in pieces over so many years, having so few resources technically at your disposal is that it completely negates the problem of performance because nobody actually has to act in this movie. They just have to be the image mm-hmm. from scene to scene. And so that issue of movies that, and we can think of lots of low budget films that were shot under duress of one kind or another, where the performances are not great and they're great films anyway, and, and, and we watch them, but you always look at them and think, oh, wow, that, that's, it, it's, it's a shame there wasn't another take on that scene or that mm-hmm. there wasn't a different actor in that scene. 
that is never an issue here. Well, and it's also interesting that, and and this is kind of a necessity of the budget and the fact that most of it was shot on 8mm, although not all of it. Some of it was shot on 16mm, and you can actually tell some of those scenes because the the frame rate uh, is different. It's not a lot, but there's no dialogue at all in this film, despite the fact that our protagonist is on the phone for what feels like minutes on minutes. <laughs> He's just literally holding the phone up to his head and reacting to things. Well, that does bring me to the man who's on the phone, who seems to be our antagonist. Though, to your point earlier, Maitland, about the mutability of identity, he seems to be played by different people. And I'm not sure if that's just me not being able to see the face of the man in the phone booth. He looks like he changes, and for sure he changes actually back or into Bobby at the end of the film. Again, that could just be me like thinking, oh, this one actor looked different based on different times and also, you know, going back to this was shot over seven years, but I'm sure they shot all of the stuff in the telephone booth probably around the same time, just because they had that one set. It's entirely possible. I mean, one of the things with this movie is it's so hard to tell certain things about it because who knows, frankly, exactly how certain things were done from shot to shot. And, it's astonishing to me that this movie is as co- not just coherent, but as completely cohesive as it is. Yeah. And the circumstances of production on every level, the budget, the attenuated production schedule, the fact that if there was an actual actor in that movie, I don't know who that would have been. All things that can, that can torpedo a film so easily. And here it, it simply doesn't. I guess primarily because there is an overriding artistic vision that makes it all work, that manages to smooth over all of those rough edges and bring it all together into a coherent vision. Not a linear vision, but a coherent one. It's absolutely consistent. And you do get a which is why it's astonishing that he took his name off it. I Because, I, again, if this wasn't his vision, I want to know what would have been his vision because this seems very, very sure, sure-footed. You know, there, there's nothing in this film that does not appear or feel like it like shouldn't be there or it, it, there's a, a weird misstep or there's something missing. Um, I mean, in as much as a non, non-linear, non-narrative kind of film is and a dream, it's clearly the product of a director who has a very firm, very clear grasp of what he wants to do and a very clear vision and the execution of that vision. Um so I, I just, again, I would love to know, because I've read a couple of interviews where he's just like, it was taken away from me. It's not what I intended. It's not what I intended. I just want to sit him down and be like, what was it you intended? What exactly did you want to do if not something like this? I suppose part of that is the combination of, of first, artists are difficult. I mean, you know that with any interview you've ever read with any painter, any writer, any filmmaker, any playwright, any well, not to rip off George Orwell, I, I'd say that some artists are more, more difficult than others. And, and James Bidgood, from everything I've read and all the interviews, uh, and the documentary, uh, that was made about him, uh, what was it, 20 years ago in 2000, um, particularly uh, prickly about his work. And, and again, as a filmmaker myself, and someone who wrote and directed a nonlinear gay movie that did pretty well uh, about 10 years ago. But it's called Pornography, a Thriller. You can look it up. I'll plug myself. 
Um, you can rent it on I iTunes. Love that movie, by the way, do you? I love pornography. You just made my life. No, not my life. You made my week. How about that? It's, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Having your film taken away from you after seven years in edit, that is a very patient distributor and financier. That is not somebody who should be <laughs> yelled at. If you haven't finished your movie in seven years, or at least a rough cut, come on. Every time he talks about it, like, you know, they took it away from me. They took it away from me. Like, dude, like, what? did you need eight years? Did you need nine years? Like, how many years did you want to take on this? And it's not like this movie cost a lot of money or anything. And And it's certainly... You know, it shows that he was so meticulous and certainly they didn't have a lot of money to shoot it. I mean, the whole, the whole budget was like what under, under 30 grand or something, even in the sixties, which is more, you know, it's more like what a hundred something thousand now, probably, or maybe even 200. It's still not a lot of money. No, it's but over a period of yeah, time. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But it's like, so cut together a rough cut. I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect, but I think a lot of first time filmmakers were just like, no, we have to get it right the first time and it has to be exactly right and whatever. And, and there's a downside to that. And the downside is a lot of people don't finish their movies. They shoot it or shoot most of it and they don't finish it. And the reason is because like it's not the movie they were envisioning and the issue with that is then you don't have a movie like it's always 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 better to finish all my independent film friends and myself we're all struggling we're all hustling we're all trying to make it by we're all trying to make stuff you know one of the primary rules i only have a few but one of the biggest rules is no matter what you should finish you have to finish it doesn't have to be perfect or you just try to make it as perfect as you can Having something is better than having nothing, even if it sucks, especially if it sucks, because if it sucks and you finish it, you learn, you move on. It's like, it's like a funeral. You're saying goodbye to it. It's like you, you can let it go. And I think that artists have a a tendency to hold on. And I think that's in filmmaking. That's like one of the things you can't do as James Budgood found out. Okay. If you're a painter, you can actually have your canvas in your studio forever and yeah, maybe eventually you finish it, even if it takes you an insanely long period of time. But there's a limit with films to how long you can let things go before you can't finish that film anymore. Yeah. Because the films have in them. Films have locations in them. And actors actors change, they die, they go away and become realtors. You can't get them back. If 10 years after you shot that initial footage, you, you you finally pulled yourself together and you think, okay, I can do another, I can do another 10 minutes of this movie. Well, you can't unless you can figure out a way to do it without all those original people who worked in it because Costumes film, disappear. unless it's animated film, locations limited change. by physical things. Like people get older, people die. The, the neighborhood that you shot in 10 years ago looks absolutely nothing like neighborhoods now. So you can't go back there and do two more scenes of that guy coming out of that thrift shop that used to be there because it's been, you know, the, the entire block has been leveled and there's a 35 story apartment building on it. The description of him working on this for so long and it being so personal, so much reminds me of David Lynch's Eraserhead, but at least Lynch knew when to end something as Obtuse as Eraserhead could be seen, there's an internal logic that I have that much of a problem following, but at least there's a beginning, middle, and end. Whereas this one, I don't know necessarily, it just, it's a thing, but it feels like there is an end to it, and that end is the, the gentleman who is on the phone coming 
back to the apartment and then turning into Bobby Kendall and then the film ends. Okay, that's great. So yeah, I can't necessarily see where, what else would he have done with this because yeah, I'm very curious. The one thing I'm, I am very curious about was the music because I know that a lot of this is just classical music that is being used. There's a K. Kaiser song that's in here, but for the most part, it's pictures at an exhibition, those kind of things. So it's like, okay, yeah, we've heard this before, but it, to me, it goes with it. I wasn't jarred by the music at all. So that was the one thing where I was just like, well, maybe he doesn't like the music, but I'm sure that he feels like his baby was taken away from him. But sometimes you got to give up that baby. The only way you don't is if you finance it all yourself and then you can like keep cutting it and recutting it your entire life. I mean, but I mean, I don't think that's fair to the work. I mean, I, I have a, I don't know. I mean, it's like I've made one feature, a bunch of shorts and I've edited a bunch of stuff and, and you know, but I've been active filmmaker for 20 plus years. There's a responsibility that a filmmaker has to the work. It's not just yours. You know, a lot of people worked on this and a lot of people put their love into this too. Even if it were just an animated film and nobody put anything into it except you, you owe it to the work to have it out there. The one responsibility we have to ourselves and to our work is to finish. And and if my words right now have spurred anybody listening to this to finally finish that thing they've been working on, even if it sucks, especially if it sucks, try not to make it suck, but even if it does finish and have it be done and then move on to the next one, because the next one will always be better, always be more interesting, always be more now, always be more relevant. The one thing we have to do is move on as artists. That's all we have to do. Sondheim had a great song at the end of Sunday in the Park with George, where if you listen to it, Bernadette Peters and Mandy Patinkin, Bernadette Peters is the ghost of Dot, who was in George Seurat's paintings. And uh, she is speaking to his, I think, grandson or great-grandson or something, who was also an artist, who is in a pickle. Um, he's just released some modern art that was not taken well, and he doesn't know what to do. And she comes back to inspire him, and she sings this beautiful song called Move On. And everyone should go to Spotify and listen to it if you're in that place. Because it's helped me and it's the one thing we all need to understand and, and do. We're just human. Make our work. Get it out there. You never know who it's going to inspire. Obviously, my work <laughs> has inspired people on this podcast. So that that is tickling me. Um, but did I expect that ever? No. I just knew I had to finish it. I'm just still tickled Maitland likes my movie. And so, you know, it's like you see a movie like Pink Narcissus, which is so obviously the product of passion and and angst and drive. And you hear the story that was taken away from him, but it was still cut together in this really incredibly, like, particular way and and scored. And it has this dreamlike effect and it has it has inspired people for decades now. I mean, it came out in 71 and people are still talking about it. I don't think a piece of art gets more successful than that. I was really surprised to read that since this was credited to Anonymous that people were guessing and they were guessing that Andy Warhol directed this. This does not seem like a Warhol piece at all. The other thing that people were saying was Kenneth Anger. And I was like, okay, I can see the anger. You know, you brought up Maitland at the beginning. 
how this reminded you. And I think David, you did as well, because yeah, the, the use of color in Anger's films, and we did an episode forever ago about Kenneth Anger, and I had no idea just how beautiful his stuff looked. And this is like that. This is like, you know, Anger seemed to have more polish to him a lot of times. I think he was probably dealing with better film stock, but those colors that excitement, the vibrancy of a Kenneth Anger film is right there in this as well. And in particular, as I said, Inaugural Pleasure Dome, the, the palette is identical. And some of the feel of it actually is very similar. I mean, the narrative, to the degree that we can talk about the narrative in either of those films, although maybe Pleasure Dome has a little bit more narrative, I don't know, it is not really the primary thing. It is very much about a look and a feel and and a very dark erotic charge. I mean, anger obviously that's a, that's a thing in all his films, but it is definitely a thing in this film as well. There is a very dark eroticism to parts of it, particularly when you get to the Times Square section. You know, it doesn't have that bucolic fucking the earth thing. I I really love that brewing the ground scene. I just think that's great. And it happened before 1900, the Bertolucci movie, where where I think, what, Gerard Depardieu does, or is it Robert De Niro? One of them fucks the ground. Mm-hmm. And it is just so primal. You know, I am I am going to fuck the entire earth. That That's because that's who I am. So what, you just go around knocking up planets now? Is, is that what you do when I'm in school? I'm a scientist, Morty. I try things. Sex with a living planet? Big step for mankind. The costuming in for him particularly is breathtaking, particularly that white suit. Oh yeah. I can't even believe he could he could take that off because it truly did embody the I don't know if you remember uh, from the eighties, I think uh there was a jeans company called Juju Jeans whose specialty was we make the tightest jeans you could possibly buy and get <laughs> a theme song, the chorus of which was my juju Oh, my juju, they fit you like they're painted on. Okay, that's Bobby Kendall's white suit. I couldn't believe he could get out of it. Oh, I can imagine him getting out of it. See, these are too easy. You just keep setting me up for these things. I can't say no when there's an opening like that. Oh, wait. wait, An opening like that. Sorry. I take it back. That was unintentional, that one. Still, you are just a boy who can't say no. (laughs) Oh, I'm going to get so much shit about this episode people can't handle when i when i talked about boys in the sand people couldn't handle that good lord again going back to that this was released as anonymous i was very fascinated that it took them so long before his name was actually associated with the film i think it was god what did i read like 20 years or more until somebody finally figured it out some writer some writer found him that's got to be so strange to have your movie out in the world and then not have your name on it. But I thought it, it, it's funny because he was just like, oh, yes, I did this as protest. And it's like, OK, yeah, that was like the worst protest thing you can possibly do. This is this is not like, you know, Warner Brothers recutting the Uma Thurman movie, The Avengers, and cutting half of it out and then leaving the poor director to like twist in the wind. This is like. A beautiful classic movie. It's like, I, again, if you didn't intend this, please, James Bidgood, what on earth did you want to do? I don't know. It's hard to imagine. And I mean, when I, you know, I think about him and then I think about somebody like Wakefield Poole, who knew oh, yeah. exactly what he wanted to do yep. and, you know, got a lot of grief. And, and I, I have to say, one of my favorite things that ever happened to me was that I got to meet Wakefield Poole and he actually 
came to our apartment because a friend of mine was doing a documentary on him and they lost one of their New York locations. And he called me up and said, Malin, I have no place to shoot. I saw that documentary. That's a good documentary. Well, those scenes where they're talking around that table, that's my living room table. And Wakefield Pool is a really interesting cat, like him and Joe Gage and Fred Halstead. I mean, especially Fred Halstead. That's a whole nother thing. I did a lot of research on these guys when I was writing my movie, Pornography, a Thriller. And basically because Boys in the Sand and Bijou and all of these movies and, and Joe Gage's trilogy of like Kansas City Trucking Company and El Paso Wrecking Corp and L.A. Tool and Die, these are all gay porn films, but they were – they at the time – Gay porn wasn't like it is now where it's just basically like straight porn. It's like, you know, they show up, they go through a bunch of positions, you know, they fuck, they come and that's it. Um, these were like art movies that happen to have explicit hardcore gay pornography in them. And, and that may sound silly and crazy, but honestly, you watch any of these movies, these are not standard issue porn movies from what anyone thinks is a porn movie these days. These are like composed and like erotic, but like, you know, there's whole sections of it that don't involve sex. A lot of them and involve like character. And especially in the, in the, in the, you know, Fred Halstead movie, it was like voiceover. It owes a lot to a movie like pink narcissus, which is all dreamlike eroticism and, you know, leave it to the gays to like, you know, kind of bring pornography to a level that like, you know, you know, <laughs> debatably does it deserve to be there. You know, that that's just a much more higher quality than uh, what it kind of devolved into once AIDS started hitting and once video production took the place of 16 millimeter production. You saw a lot more standard issue. Oh, you know, teacher, I need extra credit, you know, or, you know, <laughs> pizza guy stuff or whatever, whatever the, the stereotype of gay pornography is and was in the in the 80s uh, straight up through today. But, you know, also that's true of, of a certain amount of straight pornography as well, because when you look at straight porn of the of the 70s, I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a ton of, of shit that's exactly what you expect it to be. But, you know, there are also movies like the opening of Misty Beethoven. Behind the Green that, Door. That, and Behind the Green Door yep. that are more interesting movies than you would get 10 years later when porn had settled into what the the parameters of the porn business were and what you could and couldn't do and what and what people felt wasn't worth doing because it wasn't going to make you any more money at the box office it was just going to take more time and you know be and and not be worth the effort and the time and the money invested all right we're going to take a break and play a few words from our sponsors I'm Jeff Sandwich. You might not know me, barely anyone does, except my mother and her cocker spaniel, Alan. But I have listened to every single movie podcast that has ever been made. I don't get out much, and sometimes I have to make toilet in a bottle. What did he just say, Marjorie? However, having completed this exhaustive research, it is my assertion that the After Movie Diner podcast, with its heady mix of comedy, movie banter, fandom, passion, beards, music, and voluminous thighs, is in fact the greatest movie podcast available anywhere, even Holland. Find the After Movie Diner podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and AfterMovieDiner.com. Now, where's that bottle? 
Hi there, Faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Podcatchers, both Android and iOS. Hey fans, this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company. They review cult films, any cult film, every cult film, and it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today, what's going on. These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. And if you're a cult member, or you want to be a cult member, you're thinking about being a cult member, your mom's a cult member, your dad's a cult member, your damn mother-in-law's a cult member, tune in outside the cinema, baby, and you'll find out what's going on. Reverend Scott, and that's out. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to the Projection Booths. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the Projection Booth are talking about good party cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We hate movies every Tuesday. All right, we're back, and we're talking about Pink Narcissus. And I was very glad to finally have the excuse while researching this film to go back and watch Jean Genet's Songs of Love, which I've had on DVD forever, and finally was just like, I really need to watch this now, because I had heard that the two films were not necessarily related, but the idea of more lyrical, not necessarily plot-driven, there is a plot to Songs of Love, but it is very... It feels like it's driven more by emotions than necessarily by plot. And the version that I saw had much more modern music that was laid over it. It feels like this was probably scored once and then rescored for the DVD release. I don't know how that went uh, necessarily, kind of like how Tuxedo Moon, I think, had done a score for Pink Narcissus. I'm not sure who it was that was doing music for this version of uh, Songs of Love, but... Yeah, gorgeous, gorgeous film. It was really, I'm so glad that I actually sat down and watched this version. And thank you for bringing it up because I had never seen it. Weirdly, it just, I just never saw it, but it's, it's a really unbelievably interesting movie. And now I have to go rewatch Todd Haynes Poison, which basically one of the sections of his movie, which is an anthology movie, um, made in 1989, kind of was one of the movies in the new queer cinema of the time. I was going to say rips off, but I don't think that's particularly fair, but it, it takes a lot from this short. Uh, one of the, one of the sequences in his film. I remember that sequence. I mostly remember the spitting in that sequence that really <laughs> disturbed me, which, which has more gay sex in it, just in case anyone's uh, keeping track. But surprising that this was 1950 and this was just rife with erotica and just, I was, so much dick swinging going on in this movie. I was really pleasantly surprised that it was so erotic for something from 1950. And it also took somebody like Janet, whose entire attitude at everything was a pate le bourgeois 
to the hundredth nth degree. He was a transgressive artist who wasn't even interested really in doing anything that wasn't going to upset people a lot. I think Janae gets credit for being the writer of Poison. I think that's how much that section of Poison pays homage to Songs of Love. Yeah, Haynes has always been very kind of upfront about it. Like, yeah, this is, you know, <laughs> basically my version of this movie. I mean, he wrote a lot of novels, and that's kind of what he was known for. In fact, he wrote, uh, I believe, and, and again, I have to look this up myself. I, I'll run to my Wikipedia. But, I mean, he wrote a number of things in jail. Probably for homosexuality. I think he was actually kind of a petty criminal. Oh, really? Quite honestly. not It wasn't just a gay thing. I remember Querel. I can't remember who directed that. It was oh, it was Fassbender. Well, Fassbender. Yeah, that was Fassbender. Yeah. Now available and on Criterion Channel. Really Everyone should watch it. And then he also did The Balcony, which I can't remember if that's available now. I, the one with Shelley Winters and Peter Falk. It's got this amazing cast to it, and I I've been wanting to watch it for the longest time, but I have not watched it yet. Also, a film of the maids, which which is, you know, very much about class. Uh, and it was based on the true case of two French maids who murdered the woman they worked for and, and who a woman who had been tremendously abusive to them. So and class was a big thing with Jenny. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Présenterons bientôt sur cet écran le premier film entièrement détourné de l'histoire du cinéma. Un toast aux exploités pour l'extermination des exploiteurs. Les leçons de l'insurrection de Budapest enfin portées à l'écran. Le film de référence est fortement déconseillé aux lecteurs du Nouvel Observateur. La dialectique peut-elle casser les briques la dialectique peut-elle casser des briques La dialectique peut-elle casser des briques Les petits chefs morts pendant que les bureaucrates constatent. <rire> si les prolétaires s'attaquent aux masses médias, notre idéologie va refroidir. Même si on a le cul dans l'eau tiède. <rire> J'en parlerai à mon ministre de la Culture. Il faudra interdire tous ces films. L'adaptation détournée du doublage a été réalisée par l'Association pour le développement des luttes de classe et la propagation du matérialisme dialectique. Un épisode pendant de l'âpre combat entre le prolétariat à gauche et la bureaucratie à droite. Quel pied J'entends les mots dialectiques et je sors ma culotte. Et blanc dans les dents des bureaucrates Tu me plais pas, Larbin. Ils ont tous ton air péninou là-dedans. Ça doit puer la sorbonne des mauvais soirs. La liberté est le crime qui contient tous les crimes. Ce ne sera plus une énigme pour ceux qui viendront bientôt dans cette salle. Voir un film directement lié à l'histoire universelle où le dialogue s'est armé pour vaincre ses propres conditions. Répugnante saloperie de bureaucrate. C'est avec tes tripes que... Et tu connais la suite. Crève, salope. 
En attendant, vous allez produire et consommer. Les idées s'améliorent. Le sens de l'adaptation du dialogue y participe. Entre autres, vous verrez un bureaucrate prévoyant et lucide préparant ses tripes. Quand la dialectique devient force pratique, les bureaucrates en prennent plein la gueule. La dialectique peut-elle casser des briques Cours vite, camarade, le vieux monde est derrière toi et la Ligue aussi. That's right, we'll be back next week with a look at René Vianette's Can Dialectics Break Bricks? Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Maitland and David. So, Maitland, what is keeping you busy these days? I am just finishing editing an anthology of short stories on the theme of love in the middle of the corona pa- uh, pandemic that will be out in July from Riverdale Avenue Books. It's tentatively called Love in the Time of Corona. And aside from that, I'm doing all of my usual projects. I'm reviewing here. Uh, I was doing some pieces for film comment, but like so many other publications, they are on indefinite hiatus right now. Some DVD commentaries and that sort of thing. Most recently, I did Paul Schrader's Comfort of Strangers. That was a lot of fun. Christopher Walken in that accent talking about mascara. So good. My father was a very big man and he had a moustache. (laughs) Moustache. And when his black moustache began to go gray, he would use a little (laughs) wand such as ladies use. Mascara. Yes, that. I watched that a lot of times. Oh. Quite recently. (laughs) Yeah. I love that movie. And Rupert Everett, my God, what a perfect bitch he is in that film. (laughs) And David, what have you been doing during lockdown? I'm surprised to say I've been extraordinarily busy, actually. Um, I am still working on my documentary, which will be done next year. This is a documentary on one of the movies that kind of has my heart, which is John Borman's 1977 infamous film, Exorcist to the Heretic. And I have been working on this documentary for a couple of years. Um, the URL is hereticsmovie.com, but nothing's up there yet. It will be before the end of the year, I promise. And I am actually hosting a podcast myself, which gives me enormously more respect for Mike and what you do here because Lordy Lord, it was a lot of, it's been a lot of work. I am the host of a new podcast from Outfest, the LA LGBT film festival people. Uh, it's called The Outcast, presented by Outfest. And it will be launching hopefully next month. And we have a lot of guests so far, which is amazing. We have John Cameron Mitchell, Justin Simeon, who uh, directed Dear White People, uh, the three fabulous queens from the HBO show were here, Eureka, Shangela, and Bob the Drag Queen. And that's just three of the seven episodes we've already recorded, and we have like two more coming uh next week so it's a lot it's a lot to do um so i'm really really happy uh that that's happening although it's very odd to be hosting a podcast this is not something i ever thought i would ever do so i'm constantly asking like the people at office i'm like am i okay am i just being boring i don't even know welcome to my world i'm stealing myself for the tweets 
I know, I know somebody's gonna really have a problem with me, and like, or more than somebody. So I'm stealing myself for the uh, the nasty grams. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Thank you.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.